that sound? Yes? Maybe you can stay in your seats back there, guys. Let's uh, open our Bibles to the book of Exodus. We're going to do a short mini-series surveying the book of Exodus as we take a break between main section number one in Matthew's Gospel and main section number two, teaching section two. So chapter eight starts a new section. So encountering God in Exodus is this short six-week series through the first 19 chapters of Exodus. The first message is entitled, Where is God? And then the remaining messages will ask similar questions about what God is like or who is God. We're going to find some really, I think, helpful answers in the form of a narrative and a story and a very action-packed drama. This question should be pretty relevant. I've been pastor long enough to know. It doesn't take long, probably even your first week or so if you're a pastor. You'll start getting questions and conversations with church members and people that look at the situations and circumstances in their life and they ask the simple question, where's God? Let's be honest. Whether it's your own individual circumstances or things going on in the world, this question gets asked a lot. Bad things happen, and we wonder, well, if God's good, why are all these bad things happening? Can I, can I still believe him and trust him if this is what happens when I'm doing good things or I'm trying my best to serve him, and, and this is what I get? Friends, this is a normal conversation in the everyday of my life. So whether this is what you're going through right now, my guess is that at some point you and I are going to have a chat like this. You're going to be going through it at some point. Where is God? Interestingly enough, that's the same question when you open up the book of Exodus. Exodus is the sequel to the book of Genesis. They're continued the same storyline and thought. But one interesting observation that you should note as we cover the first two chapters today is that you will not see much of God. And I think it's deliberate upon the author who penned and put together Exodus in its final form that we have here is to leave God mostly out of the first two chapters because this is an often experience that I just mentioned for his people. That when suffering and slavery and oppression and difficulty and trials all come our way, we wonder, is God even around? So I'm going to give you three answers to where God is in Exodus chapters 1 and 2. It's going to be the same answer in terms of where God is in your life. I think it will be extremely applicable. Question, where is God? Answer number one. He is keeping his promises. You can see that in the first seven verses. Follow along as I read the first seven verses of Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan and Ephtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. It doesn't sound that exciting in the first seven verses. It sets the stage for where we're at in Exodus. But more than that, it is picking up so many breadcrumbs. It's picking up so many things that started in the narrative of Genesis. This is why it's a sequel. If you've never read Genesis or Exodus, just know that you're really going to miss out on what Exodus is putting down. You're not going to track with it if you don't know what's going on in Genesis. For example, in order to understand even these seven verses and what we're about to hear in Exodus and today's message and the weeks to come, you're going to need to be familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 1, God making man and woman and telling them, I have made you to be fruitful and multiply. You're going to need to be familiar with the story of Noah and the flood and an ark and deliverance through waters of judgment. You're going to need to be familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel and the 70 nations 
that made a ziggurat to try and reach up to God, and God looked down at their puny efforts and said, we need to come down to them. They haven't even gotten close. You're going to need to be familiar with the story of Abraham and the promises that God made to Abraham to make him into a great nation. There was even the promise that Erica read for us earlier in the service, that Abraham's family would be in Egypt for hundreds of years, but then God would rescue them. You need to be familiar with those promises because God's going to deliver on them. He's going to be faithful in the story of Exodus on several of these promises. By the way, when we read the story of Egypt, so many people forget that Abraham already went down to Egypt for the same reason that all the people that I just read in the first seven verses went down to Egypt. Why did they go down to Egypt? Jacob and all of his sons that I just read. Because of a famine in the land. Well, in, Exodus, in Genesis chapter 12, you know that Abraham went down to Egypt because of a famine in the land. And then the king of Egypt enslaved, you could call, Abraham's wife, Sarah. And so the Lord struck down the Pharaoh of Egypt with plagues until he was willing to let God's people go. Read Genesis 12 earlier, later today. And you'll see that Exodus already happened in miniature form through the story of Abraham. Like Abraham, Israel will leave Egypt and he will have great wealth. The Exodus of Abraham is previewing the Exodus of Israel before you even get to the book of Exodus. So we fast forward in the story of Genesis to Jacob and Laban, the way that God delivered Jacob from all the false idols of Laban is again another preview of the way God will deliver Israel from all the false idols of Pharaoh in Egypt. And lastly, you must know the story of Joseph. The reason that Israel's sons were there in Egypt was because of a famine, and Joseph was in slavery because of his son's jealous, his brother's jealousy. But he was rescued out of slavery, and he was delivered from all of the oppression that he had and became the right-hand man, a prince of Egypt, you could call him. And that prince of Egypt led God's people through the famine into life and abundance and prosperity and being fruitful and multiplying out of starvation and death and into life. That's where we pick up this story. It's the story of Joseph. The gun, another precursor to the story of Exodus. It's where we pick up Genesis. Actually, look back a page over. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As Joseph is talking to his brothers after they had treated him so poorly, he has this God perspective. As for you, you meant evil against me, brothers. But God, he meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to his brothers. The way that the book of Genesis ends, going to be illustrated with the story of Exodus as we pick up the story right where it left off. The first seven verses are densely packed reminders that God has kept his promises. Look at verse 5 again. You see the number 70? It's an echo back to Genesis chapter 10, the story of the Tower of Babel that I just mentioned. The 70 house in the household of Jacob means that Israel is the new 70 nations. It was the 70 nations that fell at the Tower of Babel, and God is raising up a new nation. Even after Joseph and all his brothers die, Israel is still being blessed and prospering in the land of Goshen. Look at verse 7. The Hebrew language here is only seven Hebrew words. This number of seven is perfection. It's telling that Israel is doing very well. They're receiving the abundant promises fulfilled. This is exactly what God promised to Abraham, that, that he would bless him and make him into a great nation and that he would be fruitful and he would multiply. This means that the Adam and Eve story of being fruitful and multiplying in Genesis chapter 1, Israel is now the new Adamic, the new humanity, if you want to call it that way. By the way, sometimes people... Don't realize this, but the word Adam in, the, in Hebrew, Adam and Eve, it just means human. That's what his name means. Because he's the representative of all humans. So when you're reading that first story, you, you're supposed to see, oh yeah, that's, that's us, humans. 
So Israel is the new humanity, the new kind of humans in the world. And it seems as if God is absent as we start turning into verse 8, when the new king over Egypt oppressed them. But my question before we turn there is, will you trust God's promises even when you cannot see their fulfillment quite yet? Should you not look at the first seven verses of the story of Exodus and see that, man, this God is faithful. This God is repeatedly faithful to deliver his promises and be good to his people. And how many times is God good to you and you quickly forget how good he's been because you're so discouraged and distracted by the other things that you don't have yet? The whole story of Genesis should help you to look back and say, this God is good to his people. Change of circumstances. Don't like this God anymore. Where is he? Where's God? This is, this is us. You should see in all of this a little bit of us. So in verse 8, everything suddenly changes. This new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph, knowing Joseph was important because Joseph kind of gave the people of Israel a sense of, oh, they're okay, yes. Joseph was good. He's, he's with them sort of mindset. The memory of Joseph is gone from this new king's mind. And the big question remains, will God continue to be good on his promises? Look at verses 13 and 14 as we see that oppression and the shrewdness of this new king starts to fear the great blessing that God has given them. It's almost as if God has blessed them too good. That now the king of Egypt is threatened and afraid at how prosperous and great this nation is. And so therefore it says in verse 13 and 14 that they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Do you remember back in verse 7 I said there were seven Hebrew words and it's piling up the blessing of God being faithful to his promises? This is the counter opposite of that. Now you have words piling up again, but in this time, they're piling up as burdens on God's people. In fact, the same word for work and serve is consistent throughout. So if you were to read this in the Hebrew, this is what it would sound like. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel serve as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of service in the field, and in all their service, they ruthlessly made them serve as slaves. Now that sounds terrible to read in English, and so that's why you use synonyms, because you're like, that sounds terrible. But the point should be the piling up of burdens. It seems like the exact opposite of the piling up of the blessing. If the language of divine creation is the multiplication and growth of the people of Israel, the language of the, world, the world's resistance against God is oppression and destruction and death. Enslavement and oppression is often the world's response to the great freedom and life that God was planning from the beginning of creation. Subjecting humans to abuse and humility and suffering is to strip them of their very dignity and being made in God's image is to dehumanize them. The force of death in the world that Pharaoh is bringing here is a symbol of all the force of evil in the world. So why? Why did God allow this to happen? Now when you read Exodus, just Exodus all by itself, you get no answer. And you might be tempted to think, maybe it's just the world's full of suffering. But if we keep reading our Bibles, we'll know that in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 5 through 8, it tells us that while Israel was in Egypt, they worshipped many idols. Something God often does is to give his people over to wicked rulers when they reject the worship of Yahweh. So where is God? He's keeping his promises. Even the promise to bring curse on the land of Israel. He has not lost control. Pharaoh is not calling the shots. God is keeping his promises both to bless his people in verse 7 and to bring down curse on them in verses 13 and 14. But the good news is that God is not just 
dishing out blessings and curses. He is also so gracious and so merciful that he's doing something else in the midst of the punishment and curses. Pharaoh wants to kill all the firstborn in Egypt of, of the people of Israel. How just is God that as we fast forward in the story, it will be all the Egyptians and all their firstborn who will die. The chapter will culminate in a repetition in chapter 1. Look at verse 22 of chapter 1. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, not just Pharaoh, but the whole nation of Egypt, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This was a community project that Pharaoh enacted. And so it will be, as we go through Exodus, that God's justice will be accomplished. Anybody who curses the nation of Israel will, in fact, be cursed. The movement of the narrative escalates the whole nation of Egypt acting in unity against God. And this is why all of Egypt will suffer the plagues that they will in the weeks to come. Where is God? What's the answer, friends? He's keeping his promise. Do you need to be reminded of that? My guess is yes. Number two, where is God when he seems hidden? He is working through what we might call italics, kind of uh, scare quotes here. Weak people. Meaning they're not really weak people, but in the eyes of the world, God is going to work through weak people to accomplish his purposes and when it seems like you cannot trace God's hand, oh, you should know his heart for the poor and the humble and the weak. Three examples in chapters 1 and 2 of God working through weak people to redeem and save and rescue and bring about justice. Example number one. Two midwives. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. If it is a daughter, she shall live. Midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Isn't it so interesting? Friends, I hope you get excited about cool little nuggets like this, but I do. In verse 15, we're given the names of these two Hebrew midwives. Whose name do we not find in the story at any point? Pharaoh, the king. No, the scholars want to spend all this time trying to figure out, now which Pharaoh was it based on our archaeological this and that and histories? I think the author wants to especially point out that these two women will forever be reminded and remembered but Pharaoh, people are still trying to figure out which one it is. They built pyramids, the pharaohs, to be remembered. Just think about that for a moment. They still stand to this day because the pharaohs always wanted their names to be remembered. And so the Bible subversively says, no way, Pharaoh. The world thinks kings and rulers are great and powerful, but the Bible says women like these two midwives, are the great and powerful and courageous agents of God's salvation plan. The reason that they are called midwives is likely because they were unable to have children on their own, and therefore, whether they were Egyptian or Hebrew, it is not clear in the text, but it is obvious that they are servant, lower class of society. You should not have to do much reading or studying to realize that in general, in ancient patriarchal cultures like this one that we're reading in, women were not very valued. And we're talking important women, queens. They were still women. This is like a double dagger. It's a woman and it's a midwife. If you're in a culture where having children is basically what you are seen as your purpose and value for all of existence, ladies, I don't think that's the biblical theology of women. It's a part, but it's not the whole thing. If that's what the world looks like and you can't have children, then they just call you cursed. You're cursed. You can't have children. You're barren. But the response of God 
to put the fear of God in these women and through the mighty hand, not of Yahweh, but of two midwives. In God's apparent absence, where is God? He uses the faith of the powerless and the weakest in the world to bring down the most mighty kingdom that's in existence in that day. Literally, that's what happens. The kingdom of Egypt starts to crumble and fall down in terms of its great power. It gets a huge hit because of two women allowing these boys to keep living. Look at verse 20. Look at how this plan does not work from Pharaoh and the way God constantly and repeatedly takes evil acts and works them for good. Verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. What was the whole point? To weaken the people of Israel. What was the result? They grew stronger. Do you see not irony dripping from this whole story, and we've only gotten into a few of the verses? Were these women being deceitful? Many people ask questions about that because Pharaoh's wondering what in the world's going on. You look down and you'll see. Verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let all these male children live, the midwives said to Pharaoh. Because these Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So there's two options. One is that these midwives are just lying. And this is a cute story. Or two... That's just what happened. They're like, look, we tried to go help them have babies, but they just, one push, boom, the baby came out. Ladies, what do you think? I'm not buying it. I think they're just lying. But what's interesting is that you see, and so God dealt with them favorably. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So God likes liars? No, God likes people who stand up against injustice. God likes the Corey Ten Boom family that takes Jewish people into their home and stands up against oppressive Germans. God likes people like that, like Rahab, when the spies go into the land of Canaan and she protects the men. You see what I'm saying here? This is not about life lesson number one from today's sermon. Lying is okay and God will bless you greatly. No, that's not the point. The point here is that these women are standing up against oppression and slavery and injustice and God looks on that favorably. Think of it like sometimes our conversations about just war, the lesser of two evils. I think this is what you can learn from that point. Or as you want to even look and read in our statement of faith as a church, we believe that God divinely appoints the civil governments for the interests of good order in society. Government officials should be prayed for, rightly honored, and obeyed, except and things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ruler over the things and the kings on the earth. That's in our church's statement of faith. Should we obey our government leaders? Yes. How about when they tell us to kill babies? No. Not at all. And although we don't have time to dive into the details of the ethical questions for nurses and doctors and people that have to deal with governments like the United States of America that want to encourage them to kill babies through a different kind of genocide of our population called abortion, friends, we, we should not obey the government when they're asking us to kill and murder. Scripture reading that Xavier had for us earlier in the service in Acts chapter 3 and 4, you have another clear example of the church in the early days after Jesus rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and poured out his spirit upon the church. They start proclaiming the good news of Jesus. They heal people with miracles. And everybody starts believing. The Jewish leaders are having a fit. And so they throw these men in jail. They're trying to figure out what to do. And they're being questioned. There's a very clear passage in Acts chapter 4 where he says to Peter that they want them to no longer preach in the gospel in the name of Jesus. Don't ever do it again. Do not preach this Christ. He says, listen, our job is to obey God. Now, whether or not some miracles and some teaching, you can make sense what you want of that. But first and foremost, we need to obey God. 
So we should see that the very acts of injustice, even in Acts chapter 3 and 4, or in Exodus chapters 1 and 2, trying to stop the spread of the gospel or stop the flourishing of the people of Israel, they end up getting to be the very means that God will use to actually further the spread of the gospel. What happened in the story that Xavier read for us? They got courage and boldness, and they came back and told the story to all their friends. And they said, listen, this is what happened. And they, yeah, they, they beat us up, and we got thrown in jail, and we suffered a bit. Man, we should pray that we would not stop preaching the gospel and become even more bold, and even more boldness happened, and the gospel spread even more. So that's example number one, is these Hebrew midwives. I think similarly parallels what we see in Acts 3 and 4. Example number two. What's God doing when he seems absent? He's working through ordinary people like Moses' mother, Joshebed. Pharaoh's plan doesn't work. It not only leads to more and more children being born, but it's also because of Pharaoh's plan that one particular baby is born and saved and rescued. Through the offspring of a woman, a man would be raised up who would crush the serpent's head. By the way, do you know that the king of Egypt would wear like a crown and it had a big snake on it? So if you know Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the very first promise of redemption and of salvation in the Bible is that I will crush the serpent's head through the seed of the woman. Well, through the seed of another woman, the mother of Moses, a boy is raised up and will eventually be led to crush the serpent's head, king of Egypt. God's keeping his promises through weak people, including another Hebrew woman. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. The woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, notice the phrase, a fine child. Is this to suggest that if he was ugly, baby, that she would have thrown him into the Nile River with all the other babies? I don't think so. The word here in the Hebrew is not fine. It's tov. It's good. Do you remember anything in the book of Genesis where something is called good? Good. Good. It's that Hebrew word tov. You're reading this in Hebrew. You're going to hear tov, tov, tov. It was very good. I think it's a reminder of Genesis 1 and 2 that God, what he sees as good, the mother of Moses looks at that baby and says, no, he is too good of a creation. I will not throw him into the Nile River. It also should remind us of the handsomeness of Joseph. In the same way that Joseph was a handsome man, if you read back in Genesis chapter 37, I think it is, Moses will be a prince in Egypt and bring salvation to Jacob's family just like Joseph. Except this will be the story in reverse. In Joseph's story, instead of bringing people into Egypt, Moses, the prince of Egypt, will lead them out of Egypt. Furthermore, look at verse 3. She could hide him no longer. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Two times in the whole Bible, the word ark appears. The first time is the story that I told you you should be familiar with, Noah's ark. The second time it appears, I just read to you. It's not a basket. It's an ark. The same word used in the Hebrew. It's not just a coincidence, my friends. These writers of the Bible know what they're doing. It's like a hyperlink. It's a pregnant word. It's got meaning and layers to it. That one little word triggers off just a whole entire story of Noah. And you should then look at the story of Moses going down into an ark, into the reeds. Keep that thought. That's going to come back. Noah's ark was lined with pitch, Genesis 6.14 says. So not only the same word, but the same way that the ark was being made. What does this mean? It means that Moses is going to be the next Noah that delivers people. He himself will be delivered through the water. And that's exactly what we see in our third example of God using a weak person. Another woman, in fact. First, the midwives. Second, 
Moses' mom. Third, Pharaoh's daughter. Follow along as I read verses 5 through 10. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket, the ark, that is, among the reeds. She sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of those Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Friends, if that does not make you just go, ha, as you're reading it, then you weren't reading it very well. Let me point out just a couple things. Pharaoh's daughter. The third example of God using a weak woman. Woman, for all the women in the room. I don't mean you're really weak, but just in the minds of people in the ancient stories. God's not just using another weak woman or another midwife. He's using a woman from Pharaoh's family, from the bad guys, from the bad team. The irony of the mightiest king in all the earth having his own policy of killing all of these babies being cast against him through the wisdom of a young daughter. Just think of it. The instrument of Pharaoh's demise is being grown in the garden, raised by his own family. His own daughter's actions represent the foreshadow of the divine response to the oppression of Egypt. The actual language that you see in chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, that she came down, she saw the child and heard its cry. Loaded language, my friends. Loaded, pregnant language. That same language will be used in chapter 3 where Yahweh will come down and will see his people and their affliction and hear their cry. This is a foreshadow of what's about to happen with the whole nation of Israel when this woman comes and rescues this child out of the water. God is working to raise up a deliverer right under Pharaoh's nose. Many times we think our lives and the world around us is falling apart and we ask, where's God? Learn from this story that God is providentially working out his great plan in the most unlikely ways that you would have never seen it even if it was right under your nose. Hear that, my friends. Hear it and believe it by faith that there's so many things that are going on that you just can't see and know, but is God at work? Yes. A resounding yes. In a thousand ways that you and I could never even calculate if we tried. God uses weak women. God uses Christians and non-Christians. God uses ordinary people all the time, and he's working in ordinary ways and magnificent miracle ways. Here, he's saving Moses so that Moses could save Israel. Moses is the new Noah. All around him, the children of Israel are drowning in the water, but Moses' ark passes safely through the waters, out of death, and into safety. The same water that kills others will save Moses and eventually all of the nation of Israel. And right away, Moses wants to try and be that deliverer. Follow along as I read verses 11 through 15. One day... When Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Notice that little phrase real quick, one of his people. He was with his mom long enough, which I didn't even say that. Oh, in that last story, how crazy is it that it's Moses' Moses's own mom is getting paid to care for Moses for three years. Again, huh? Right. Anyway, one of his people, he's Hebrew enough. He knows his roots. His mom cared for him. Verse 12. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh, and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. 
Now, many people think that what Moses does here is awful. He's a murderer. He's a weak man, and he needs to be humbled, and that's what this next whole section of the book of Exodus is all about. The problem with that is the Bible never says that anywhere. In fact, the Bible says the exact opposite in other places. But let's just look at the language closely, carefully. Verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. When it talks about him went out, do you see that word there, that phrase in the English? It's the word that we find all throughout the Old Testament for visiting. He visited his people. Anytime throughout the scriptures you see God visiting his people, they will either be saved or their enemies being punished or a little bit of both. I believe this is what Moses is doing. He is foreshadowing God visiting his people. Moses sees an Egyptian striking another Hebrew. The same word is used in both to show the justice of Moses' action of striking and the Egyptians' action of striking. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, stroke for a stroke. Moses also should be allowed to do this. He is, in fact, a prince and a ruler in Egypt. So it should be no surprise when Stephen, right before he dies and gets stoned to death, he preaches an amazing sermon. When he gets to this part of his sermon, he talks about Moses' action being positive as him stepping up for the oppressed, defending for those who can't defend themselves. But how do God's people respond when God brings them a Savior who wants to defend them? Verses 13 and 14 make it quite plain. The Hebrew man tries to stop the fight the next, when Moses tries to stop the fight the next day, they say, who made you judge or ruler over us? Moses sees that Israel is not ready for a departure from Egypt. They're not ready for him. So he leaves for 40 years. How many years? 40. The numbers, pregnant with meaning, dripping with deep connections with the rest of the story. Moses is not going to Midian for 40 years to pay for his sins. It is because the Lord is punishing Israel for their sins that an entire generation of Hebrew people have to die and suffer at the hands of the Egyptians because they're not ready for Moses to be their leader. The hard part is not getting Israel out of Egypt. The hard part, as you will find through the whole Old Testament, is getting Egypt out of Israel. Should I say that again? The hard part is not getting the people of Egypt physically out of Egypt. The Hebrew people, that's easy. As you will read through the whole Old Testament, the hard and difficult part is getting the Egypt in the heart of the Israelite people out. After they get delivered, you'll see soon enough that they start wondering, can we go back to Egypt? It was nice there, wasn't it? What? Read verse one, chapter 1 again. It was not nice. They worshipped the gods. They continued to struggle with that idolatry for much of their existence. Israel had to wait 40 years for salvation because they rejected the Savior that God provided. If that doesn't foreshadow a coming Savior many, many years later that gets rejected by his own people. Contrast this, by the way, with the next story, Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flocks. When they came home to their father, Ril, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flocks. He said to his daughter, then where is he? Why have you left this man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he has said, 
I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses stood up to help the daughters of Jethro, just like he tried to help Israel when he stood up and they said, no, we don't want your help. Who called you to be the prince and ruler over us? So Moses leaves. And who wants his help? Gentiles, non-Israelites, Midianites. Everything that happens to Moses personally will happen to Israel nationally. Everything that happens to Moses personally is a foreshadow of what will happen to the whole nation nationally. For example, let's recount the story. Moses is saved through the waters, and the whole nation of Israel will later be drawn out through the waters. Moses was put into the reeds. Remember that? Think of that. The river with reeds. Israel will be saved through the sea of reeds, if you want to literally translate the Red Sea. The sea of reeds. He flees to Midian for 40 years, just as Israel will spend 40 years in the wilderness of judgment. Moses is in the wilderness. God appears in a burning bush, just as the Lord will appear in Horeb to the whole nation. Moses is the head. Whatever happens to the head is going to happen to the whole body. Throughout all of these examples, these three different cases of the midwives, then eventually Pharaoh's daughter and Moses' mom. All of these are examples of God working through weak people. Which means God can work through all of you. Right? If God works through weak people, then that means even the weakest in this room should not be thinking, well, God could never work through me. Well, I'm unimportant. I'm just a mom at home changing diapers. God could never work through me. Ladies, don't ever believe that lie for a second. Don't think you need to give up being a mother and staying home with your children if that's the choice and the calling that you feel. Don't think I'm doing unimportant work. It's the exact opposite of what we learn from this story. It's not the kings and the pharaohs and the people that get all the news and the press and the glamour and the glitz. It's the everyday, ordinary people that God is using. He's going to use you if you let him. Furthermore, we should also, before we move on to our last and final point, is see that God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Do you also give grace to the weak and the lowly? What are your interactions like with people who, in the world's eyes, are weak and poor? Do you stand up for the oppressed like Moses did? Many, many good things for us to be pondering and thinking about. But lastly, the last point in the last section of chapter 2, We've seen that God, when he seems absent, is actually keeping his promises. When he seems absent, he's working through weak people. And lastly, he is listening to your prayers, and he knows your pain. Look at chapter 2, verse 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Finally, God arrives in the passage. Where is he? Verse 24. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And I love this. And he knew. And God knew. Have you ever been going through a really hard time and somebody says, I know what you're going through. And you just want to smack them? No, you don't. I know your life is so different than mine. Maybe you're a person of a majority ethnicity, and a minority says, it's really hard to feel accepted and welcome, often feel oppressed. And then some white person says, oh, I know what you're going through. You just want to smack them. Is that what God's doing here? Should we just smack God and say, God, where have you been? How do you really know what's going on? It seems like you've not been listening. It seems like we had to wake you up from your sleep. We've been praying and crying and no deliverance for hundreds of years. Friends, you have to think for a moment about the difficulty of being in the circumstances that these people are in for as long as they are and the weariness that it must be to keep crying getting no answer in response. At least it seems. It could be that some of you will pray the same prayer your entire life and never see that it comes to fruition, but it will. 
do you have that kind of faith? Or is it only when God answers it the way you like? Or can you live by faith and knowing that when you pray, he hears and he knows? And it's not just because this text says it. Because the whole Bible is shouting it and screaming it and presenting you the most beautiful story of God's love for knowing what you're going through that has ever been told. Every single thing I've talked about in this message is all pointing to a greater Moses and a greater Israel, a man named Jesus. So pray, and don't give up praying. God hears your prayers and answers your prayers. Things will happen when you pray. Do not lose heart. See through the Bible that God is keeping his promise even when it seems like he is absent. See that he's working through weak and ordinary people in ordinary ways when you feel like he's not working at all. And see that God lifts up the humble, opposes the proud, and blesses his people who persist in prayer. The story that was foreshadowed in Abraham, and then Jacob, and then Moses, and then Israel, comes to a climactic final fulfillment in Jesus. Consider for a moment the following observation especially all of you who have been studying Matthew with us. Like Moses, Jesus was born to be a savior and a rescuer. But there was an evil ruler at his birth. Like Moses, he had to sojourn for a while. And this is why Matthew chapter 2, verse 15 says of Jesus, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Like Moses, he had to pass through the waters of judgment, baptism waters, like Moses, there were silent years before his public ministry of miracles and mighty work was done. And it was just Mary, a mom, taking care of Jesus, growing in him and raising him. And you think, when's his salvation going to come? Silent, waiting, and waiting. Like Moses and all the Israelites who wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, so Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness, tempted by the serpent. But upon his return, he went to a high mountain and gave the law called the Sermon on the Mount, just like Moses did on Mount Sinai. Except this time, Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Like Moses, he was rejected by his people. So badly rejected that they did not just question, who do you think you are? Oh, they did that. And so much more. They nailed him onto a cross. They executed him. He had a horrific death. He was buried into the grave. Praise be to God that it was through those very instruments of evil and oppression and injustice that God would raise him up, vindicate him as he has ascended to the right hand of the Father to pour out his spirit and use those very acts of stopping God's plan to be the very acts that were God's plan. So that when you go to pray right now, so that when you go to pray any time this week, and you wonder, does God really know what it's like to be human and suffer the way I have suffered? Look, stare, gaze into the face of Jesus as he hangs on the cross, and don't even for a second think that your suffering has even come close to what he went through. It's utter blasphemy almost that we would look at this God and all that he has demonstrated us, not just in Exodus, but the whole story of Bible of the greater Moses, and say, no, he doesn't know what I've gone through, and I want to smack him in the face. He knows. He hears. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to come now with humbled hearts to know you have not called the mighty in this room. You have called weak and broken sinners to repentance. God, we thank you for the amazing plan of salvation and the irony that drips all of the scriptures. The reversals at every turn and corner. The way that your ways are so higher than our ways. Thank you, God, for giving us just a glimpse, a short little picture into the heavenly and divine plan for all of creation. And so we pray now. We pray with boldness and confidence that we're even talking to you now, 
knowing who we are and knowing who you are, we have no rights to even approach you the way we are, but because of the blood of Jesus, we approach your throne of grace with confidence. And we ask, we boldly ask, hear our prayers. Deliver the people of embassy from the oppression that they're currently going through. The suffering and the injustice. The addictions. The internal strife of their own sin. Deliver them, we pray God. Deliver them from unbelief. Oh, help our unbelief. Deliver us, God, from hearts that are hard and that are struggling. I keep questioning and asking, where's God when I look at all of my circumstances? God, would you deliver us and rescue us and rise us above our circumstances and see with faith? God, this is my prayer for this people, for Embassy Church. And my prayer that this faith would multiply as we see in Exodus 1 and 2. It would multiply with not just new children and, yes, bless us with lots of babies, God. But God, also multiply our converts. That there would be new creations happening, not just through physical birth, but spiritual birth. So many times there are people all around us and we just think, no, they're too far gone. God could never use me. I don't really know how to communicate the gospel like so-and-so. God, strike us down. Humble us today. Double and triple the amount of converts that we have seen in the last four or five years at Embassy. And this next season of ministry, may we see an abundant harvest of fruitfulness from your people who say, I know I'm weak. And I know in the world's eyes I'm nothing. But I have a great God. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. At this time, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together and remind ourselves that Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. He gave 